right. Good morning. Good. Uh, yeah, I'm going to say good morning, everybody. Why not? Uh, glad you're with us today. And a special welcome to Old Town. I loved that announcement video with the river in the background. You know, two weeks ago, there were uh, 13 baptisms in that river. Great things going on in Old Town. So Old Town, welcome. And if you're listening on podcast today or watching this on video, so glad you're with us. Forty-some years ago, I was a student in Bible school preparing for ministry. And one of my classes was on the book of Revelation. And one day our professor summed up the second coming of Christ in one lecture. And he used words like rapture and tribulation. And really there was nothing surprising in that material that day because I had heard that kind of teaching all my life here and there. What was surprising was the announcement at the end of class that day that not everyone had the same view concerning the timing of the Lord's second coming. He said, today we've looked at the pre-tribulation rapture view of Christ's coming again, but there are other views. There is a mid-tribulation view. There's a post-tribulation view of the rapture. Now, if you're new to this subject, you may be thinking, rapture, what does that mean? Well, there is a pretty unanimous agreement that people use the word rapture to refer to the moment when Christ takes his church out of this world to be with him forever. The Apostle Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where he says, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. Does that language sound confusing? Just think of it this way. When Jesus was resurrected from the dead following the crucifixion and the three days in the tomb, he had a new body. It was not a mortal body. It was something new. It was something different. With this new body, Jesus could suddenly appear to people or disappear from people. For example, the disciples were huddled together with fear in a room, the door closed, then locked, when suddenly Jesus was standing in the middle of them. Do you remember that? He had a new body. It was a glorified body, an immortal body, a body that was ready for heaven. We are one day going to get that same kind of body. And the Apostle Paul tells us, with what we just read, when that will take place. When is that going to be? It is going to be at His coming. Now, because the word rapture is not actually a biblical word, you don't find the word rapture in the Bible. It's not in Scripture. So I'm not going to use that anymore in this message. I'm going to use instead phrases that are in the Bible, like the Lord's return or the coming of Christ. So let me get back to my college story. My professor said, today I've given you a pre-tribulation rapture view of Christ's return. Tomorrow, Professor Nielsen is going to come and give a post-tribulation view. Well, the next day, Professor Nielsen came in, lectured for an hour on the post-tribulation view of the Lord's return. I had never heard any teaching like that in my life. And in brief, I was dumbfounded. Everything that he said, he had backed up with Scripture, and it sounded right. So what do you think I did as a college student? I said to myself, well, they're both right. And um, they're exact opposites, 
but they must both be right. And you know what I did? I just forgot about the whole thing. Just forgot about the whole thing. I, I completely ignored the subject of the Lord's return for 14 years until I was a missionary in Gabon, Africa, assigned to teach in a Bible school. Of all things, can you imagine? Yes, the book of Revelation. And yes, I was going to have to teach Bible school students who were preparing for ministry. And I thought to myself, this is just great. I don't even know what I believe myself concerning the Lord's second coming, let alone teaching Bible school students who are going to be going out teaching people in churches. And that's when I began to dig into Scripture and study for myself and figure out what the Word of God says concerning the Lord's return. So what I'm going to share with you today is how I understand the Scriptures. They're black and white to me. I didn't get these beliefs from commentaries or from the myriad of articles that you can find on the Internet. In fact, there was no such thing as the Internet 28 years ago. In fact, we didn't even have a computer 28 years ago, if you can imagine that. As a young missionary in the jungle of Africa, I took the Bible, the Word of God, as it is written, studied it, and made my conclusions. Here's why I'm giving you this background. If you have been taught a pre-tribulation view of the return of Christ and have never heard anything else, then I am simply here to ask you to listen and respect what I believe is the Word of God. And I promise you that I will listen to you if you want to talk about it, if you have a different view, and I will respect your views. Can we just agree on that? More importantly, I encourage you to study the Scripture yourself, remembering that these words are in the book of Acts. The Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said to them was true. They didn't even trust the Apostle Paul. They examined the Scriptures themselves. Here's my point. Don't take my word for what you believe, but don't take the word of others either. Examine the Scripture yourself. That's what God wants us to do. So let's jump into Thessalonians. As I begin, I want you to think about this. Paul spends more time in the two letters of First and Second Thessalonians talking about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ than he does in any other letter. Why? Well, when Paul was with the Thessalonians, it was a very brief time, just three weeks, and then he got kicked out of town. But he had obviously taught on the second coming of Christ. The problem was that they had received that teaching with some misunderstanding. And when Paul had suddenly been forced to leave town to save his life, no one was around to correct their misunderstanding for a long time. In fact, it was about a year and a half before Timothy finally brought him a report from Thessalonica, and he says, oh boy. And he writes his first letter to them, about a year and a half. Well, the result of Paul's preaching on Christ's second coming and their misunderstanding of that was that some people, and Kirk mentioned this when we went through Thessalonians in the spring, some people were just sitting around waiting for Christ's return with a kind of hysterical expectancy. It sounds crazy, but there were literally men who were doing nothing but watching and waiting for Christ's return. I think when 
Paul got that first report back from Timothy a year and a half after he had been with him in Thessalonica. He must have just put his hands in and said, Lord, how am I going to fix this? So he sits down and he writes this first letter. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he tells them this. He says, lead a quiet life, mind your own business, and work with your hands. In other words, stop sitting around doing nothing. Unfortunately, they didn't get Paul's subtle approach. So in his second letter, he gets a little more direct and he says, now listen, even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If anyone is unwilling to work, neither let him eat. Can't get any more direct than that, can you? Now in verse 13 and following, Paul gets into some of the important details concerning the Lord's return. So I want to look at those with us together today. He says, brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep. In other words, about those who die. We don't want you to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. What are these verses talking about? They're talking about the resurrection of the dead. And what is made clear here is that everyone who lives will someday live again. Just as Jesus died and rose again, everyone who dies will rise again. And what Paul is saying here is that the moment of resurrection for believers is at the coming of Christ. This is a simultaneous event. While Jesus is coming, the dead are being brought back to life and raised up to meet him. This is a big deal. Now, this is very important. This is very clear what's happening here. And the next verses make it very clear that this will not be a quiet, subdued, secret event. Rather, Christ's coming will be a loud event, an unmistakable event, event, an earth-shattering event, a trumpet-blaring event. Let's read it, verse 16. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of of the archangel with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will be raised first. These words of Paul are basically a repetition of the words of Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 24 when Jesus was asked by his disciples, Lord, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Here's what Jesus said, Matthew chapter 24, starting at verse 30. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. You've got to pause there and say, why are the nations going to be mourning? Because Christ is coming to judge them. They will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with power and great glory, and He will send His angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather His elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. It's very clear that both Paul and Jesus himself are letting us know that this is not a secret event. 
Neither is it a separate event. Jesus said that all the nations of the earth are going to see his coming. In fact, verse 27, Jesus says this, For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Let me ask you this. Is there anything secret about a lightning flash? No. When it shatters the sky over your head, there's no secret about it. And there's nothing quiet about a thunderclap as it rumbles across the miles, right? That's the way Christ's return is going to be. It is going to be unmistakably bright. Everybody's going to see it. It's going to be unmistakably loud. Everybody's going to hear it. When Jesus comes, it's going to be bright, it's going to be loud, and it's going to be terrifying to his enemies. But there's also something else that goes on here. While Jesus is coming, he will be gathering his children to him from the four winds, as he puts it. Paul puts it this way in the writing to the Thessalonians, verse 17, chapter 4. He says, We who are still alive and are left till the coming of the Lord will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Who is them? The them in this verse is those who have already died in Christ sometime in the past. So those of us who are alive when Christ comes again, it says, are not going to precede those who have died in the past. What is going to happen is everybody is going to be rising at the same time. The dead are going to be rising out of their graves. We're going to be rising up from the earth and we're all going to be meeting the Lord in the air. And then it says, and so we will be with the Lord forever. And Paul says, therefore, encourage each other with these words. Does that encourage you? It encourages me. God has a great plan for his church. Keep going. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 and following. He says, now brothers, about dates and times... We do not need to write to you, for, we, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are pay, saying peace and safety. Let me just interrupt Paul here for a second to ask you this. Have there ever been greater cries for peace than are going on in our world right now? Every day, people are crying for peace. People are desperate for peace. Let me warn you, the cries for peace are going to get greater and greater and louder and louder. And eventually, people are going to be willing to pay any price for peace. And when the Antichrist comes along and he promises them peace, they're going to take his offer. Even though it will mean up giving their, in, they will have to give up their individual liberties, even though they will have to give up their national liberties but back to the text verse 3 it says while people are saying peace and safety destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape get this now he says but you brothers in other words but you christians you are not in darkness so that this day should should surprise you like a thief you got to get this Christians should not be surprised when this day comes. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. And again, 
Paul is reflecting on the words of Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 24. Here's what Jesus told his disciples. No one knows the day or the hour. Not even the angels in heaven, not even the Son of Man. I don't even know myself. Only the Father knows. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day that Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. Verse 43, Jesus continues. He says, but understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch, and he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. So you must also be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. So let me ask you this, because this sounds contradictory. Let me put it this way. Did Noah know that a flood was coming? Yes or no? Yes. That's why he was building an ark. You know, the experts estimate that it took him a hundred years to build that ark. A hundred years to build the ark. He knew. He knew the flood was coming. He knew God's judgment was coming. He was paying attention. He was ready. He was not surprised. When the day of judgment came, he was not like a person who has a thief break into his house. Here's what Jesus is saying you will not be surprised either at the Lord's return. If you are paying attention, you say, well, wait a minute, how are we going to know? From the words of Paul and the words of Jesus himself. Let me review just for a minute to get us where we need to be. I told you at the beginning of the message that Paul's preaching in Thessalonica about Christ's return had caused some misunderstanding and confusion. Maybe you're thinking, yeah, I understand that. He addresses this. He addresses the misunderstanding. He addresses the confusion in his first letter, chapters 4 and 5, okay? Unfortunately, his first letter did not fix the problem. Even after they read the letter, they were still confused. So he wrote them a second letter. And one of the main reasons Paul wrote his second letter was this very issue of the Lord's return. Let's look at it. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Here he goes again. He says, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy or report or letter supposed to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs. And the man of lawlessness is revealed. The man doomed to destruction. He opposes and exalts himself over everything that is called God and is worshipped. And he even sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Wow. What's going on here? Who is this man of lawlessness? This is very important. The man of lawlessness is the Antichrist who is known as the beast in the book of Revelation, chapter 13. Jesus refers to him briefly in Matthew 24, though not by name, when referring to the events of the end times. In verse 15 of Matthew 24, here's what Jesus says. 
He says, so, when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. You say, Daniel? We got to go back to Daniel to try to understand this? Yes, because Jesus did. In Daniel's short book, he spent a lot of time talking about this man of lawlessness in chapters 9, 11, and 12. We're not going to have time to read all those chapters, okay? Let me just read one passage, Daniel chapter 11. Here's what we read, verses 31 to 35. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress. He will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. This is what Jesus is referring to in Matthew 24, 15. This is what Paul is referring to, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. This evil man who desecrates God's temple is known as the Antichrist or the beast, and he will be completely controlled by Satan. He will hate everything that is godly, including God's children, and he is going to do his best to destroy them, to annihilate them. Continue reading with me. Daniel chapter 11, 32 and 33. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant. Get this now. But the people who know their God will firmly resist him. That's you and me. I'm the person who knows my God. You are the people who know their God. The people who know their God will firmly resist him. Those who are wise will instruct many. Take note. In the scriptures, the wise are always believers, or the righteous. So the wise are going to keep instructing right through the tribulation. Now get this. During the time of tribulation, the church is going to have work to do. Number one, one of their jobs is to resist the evil one. It's going to be our job during the tribulation to be resisting everything he's trying to do. Secondly, we're going to be giving instruction to people who are still receptive. There'll be people who are not receptive, but there are going to be many people receptive. Though the tribulation is, though that tribulation period is going to be a horrible time of suffering, I believe it's also going to be a tremendous time of harvest for the kingdom. Let me, let me share with you what John writes in the book of Revelation chapters 14, smack, smack dab in the middle of the tribulation, okay? Revelation chapter 14, here's what he writes, verses 6 and 7. Then I saw another angel flying in midair. Here's what he's got. He has the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. And he said in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of God's judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and the springs of water. Revelation 14 middle of the tribulation. Yes, we will have a job to do. We will be God's witnesses even during the tribulation. Go back to Daniel. I got to have a drink. I'm getting dry. Anybody dry here? So it says again, verse 33, those who are wise will instruct many, though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned 
or captured or plundered, when they fall, they will receive a little help. And many who are not sincere will join them. Some of the wise will stumble so that they may be refined and purified and made spotless until the time of the end. For it will still come at the appointed time. Get this now. Those people who believe that the church is going to be taken out of this world before the end time tribulation use one of these verses in 1 Thessalonians for their support. And that verse is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9. You've probably heard it. Here's what Paul says. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the problem they have when they use this verse. They take it out of context. My homiletics professor, that is, if you don't know what homiletics means, that means the guy who teaches you how to preach, okay? He said, listen, always remember this. A text without a context is a pretext. And the context of this verse is not God's tribulation wrath, which is going to be poured out on the Antichrist and his followers. Paul's context in this verse is salvation versus damnation. It's about enjoying God's eternal reward in heaven compared to suffering God's eternal wrath in hell. It's about the issue of salvation. That's what the context is here. So don't confuse that. Yes, God will pour out His wrath on the Antichrist and His followers during the tribulation. But get this. God will not be pouring out His wrath on the church. The Antichrist will be doing that. In Revelation chapter 13, we're told that Satan, who is referred to as the dragon, will give power to the beast to do what? Revelation 13, 7. To make war against the saints and conquer them. In Revelation chapter 14, verses 12 and 13, we read this. This calls for patient endurance on the part of whom? The saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on, in the middle of the tribulation. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. Get this now. During the tribulation period, a tremendous war will be going on. Satan will be pouring everything he has into this war with the goal of destroying Christ's church. At the same time, God is going to be pouring out his wrath on the followers of Satan. Let me tell you something. God is the one who's going to be victorious. There's no doubt about that. But there will be tremendous casualties along the way. Unbelievable casualties. The church is going to lose many during this period. Here's how Jesus described it, if you doubt that. Matthew 24. He says this to us. To, <laughs> it sounds bad, but it's actually got a good ending. It's got some comfort at the end of it. He says, say, when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of the house go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be for those in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray 
that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. These are the words of Jesus. Here's my conclusion as I try to wrap this up. Why do you think God told us that these events are coming to the earth? There's only one reason I can think of. And that is so that we might be prepared. We are supposed to read the book of Revelation, read the prophecies, not to be dismayed and disheartened, but to be encouraged. There's great hope over and over again from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from Daniel to Jesus to Paul to John, we are told that the wise, the believers, will see what is going on around them and be able to figure things out so that we should not be taken unawares as a thief might take us unawares at night. Though we do not know the exact day or the hour, the signs of Christ's coming will be clear. The lawless one will be revealed. The wise will recognize him. And all of this I've read to you today from the word of God. These are not my words. This is not my opinion. I would much rather have gone through Bible college hearing just one way and be raptured out of here and no problem. And so would all the rest of us. But I have read to you today from the word of God and nothing else. When do the last days begin? We don't know that. They've been ex- the church has been expecting Christ since the apostles saw him go into the clouds 2,000 years ago. On the other hand, the last days may have already begun. If you look at the events in Matthew chapter 24, that Jesus' words about what is going to be happening. If that is true, if the, the last days have already started, are we to, to start shaking in our boots and become like frightened children? No! Remember this. Christ's church has always been persecuted. Through the centuries, millions of believers have given their lives for the name of Jesus Christ. Even today, across this world, people are being persecuted and dying because of their faith at a rate of about 1,000 people per year. Do you know this? Listen to me. The church counted it all joy to be worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. So this is not a time to worry and fret about the future. It's a time to get ready and prepare. It's a time to be repentant instead of rebellious. It's a time for holiness instead of worldliness. It's a time to reach as many as possible with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Alpha and the Omega, the Prince of Peace, is coming again. Nothing can hold Him back. And because of the tribulation that's going on, the church is going to welcome Him with open arms. They're going to be saying, Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. None of us have that attitude today. Because I can go play golf and I can go fish and I can ride around in my car and I can take vacations. I don't care if Christ comes back today like I will in that day. Do you understand what I'm talking about? 
He's going to come through the clouds as the disciples saw him leave through the clouds. And what are we to be doing until he comes? These are the last words of Jesus before he ascended into the clouds. He said this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That is our calling. That is what we are to be about. We are to be his witnesses from here to the ends of the earth until he comes, whenever that is. Would you pray with me? So talk about this. I think it's very possible that there are people here tonight who have heard this and think, wow, if that is happening, if that is going to happen, and it could be happening soon, boy, I'd like to be ready. I don't want to be dying in my sins. I don't want to have to go through that stuff unprepared. If you have never committed your life to Jesus Christ, I cannot think of a better time than in then right now to invite him to be your Lord and Savior. I'm going to say a simple prayer. If you need Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, if he's been speaking to your heart, if the Holy Spirit is drawing you to him, then I invite you to pray this prayer with me right now. You can pray it in your heart. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you that you died on a cross to pay for my sins. I am a sinner. Forgive me, Lord. Come into my heart. Cleanse me. Help me to live for you. Help me to be ready for your second coming. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God bless you.